0: We're very happy to have uh, Professor Mark Dolinger with us. Uh, Mark holds the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Endowed Chair in Jewish Studies and Social Responsibility at San Francisco, San Francisco State University. He's an author and expert in the fields of Jewish and American politics, American Zionism, and California Jews. A past president of both the Jewish Community High School of the Bay and Brandeis Hill Day School, Mark serves as Academic Vice President of, the, of Lairhouse Judaica, as well as trustee of URJ Camp Newman and the Bay Area Jewish Healing Center. He sits, on Calif- he sits on the California Advisory Committee to the United States Commission on Civil Rights, was named 2008 Volunteer of the Year by the San Francisco Jewish Community Federation, and was awarded the San Francisco JCRC's 2015 Courageous Leader Award for his work against the BDS movement. We're very happy, and we are thankful to Wendy Lupel for suggesting Bringing Mark here for the weekend. Mark was teaching at B'nai Israel over Shabbat. He's here for our special CSP Sunday morning. Uh, please join me in welcoming Professor Mark Dolinger. Okay, I'll go.
1: We're going to begin with a rabbinic quiz. I have given smicha ordination for this morning only to Ari. We should
0: ask, are any rabbis in the room? <laughs> I'm glad to pass on this one to Elliot Fine. He's right back there. Elliot,
1: <laughs> he's an educator. Uh, Elliot, you can feel free to throw in your answer if you okay. want. We're going to put Ari on the hot seat. And I'll just say, in terms of full disclosure, he knows the question, but not the answer. <laughs> and if you could bring us to the next slide. In 1963. Rabbi Richard Winograd, the interim rabbi of University of Chicago oh Hillel, was attending the Rabbinic Association annual meeting with all of his other uh, uh, brethren, all men in those days. They were passing the usual resolution in favor of Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement when Winograd and several of his colleagues objected. If you are truly concerned about effecting racial equality in this country, this group argued, don't pass resolutions. In fact, cancel the RA now. Let's go to the airport and fly to Birmingham and march with Dr. King. That's how rabbis show rabbinic leadership. Well, Winograd and a small group did, in fact, bust out of the convention. They took the flight to Birmingham and when they arrived, they were met at the airport by Southern Jews from Birmingham, some of whom were racists, some of whom were segregationists, some of whom were members of the White Citizens Council. At best, they would have professed support for the idea of racial equality, they just don't like those Northerners coming down to the South and causing trouble, because that's not the Southern way. There was a moment of engagement between Rabbi Winograd and one of these Southern white Jewish racists. So the question is, what does Rabbi Winograd say to the Southern Jews holding a sign to him that says, Yankee, go home? Rob for the day, Ari? So I will defer anybody who <laughs> knows the answer, I do not know the answer. Kelly,
0: you want to guess? Um, Shalom. 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 Um Shalom, y'all. I know, uh, I wish...
1: Oh, Shalom. Shalom. Can you advance the slide while he's thinking? I'd
0: like to share this, because I wish that uh
1: rabbi, is um. still alive, Alan Pross, in <laughs> yes. community, he did his research. <laughs> Uh, on the um, rabbis of the Deep South and how they dragged and pushed their congregational members, Reform members to be part of the civil rights movement. They were not. They were very reluctant to become part of it. I wish he was here, because I'm sure he would have known the answer.
0: Okay, so he doesn't know the answer. <laughs> I will say tzedek, tzedek, tir dof. Righteousness, righteous shall you pursue from the Bible.
1: Thank you very much. First, I'll say Rabbi Allen Cross of Blessed Memory. Um was a teacher, mentor, and friend of mine. His son, Steve, was my camper at Camp Swig, along with Stuart Zisman, who's here. And um, I was honored last year to come and, uh, and to, to speak when his book was posthumously published. And a little bit later in the talk, I'm going to be quoting from Rabbi Kras's rabbinic thesis and now books I want to, to, get, to give him kavod. Uh, so Rabbi Ari has offered uh, an excellent, if incorrect, answer. Uh, and I appreciate it because it is a setup. Uh, because Shalom Yal, I think some people were even saying that before, he looked at the southern racist Jews and said, from a moral point of view, the scales are very even. Between himself and them. From a moral point of view, the scales are very even. After he referenced that he felt like he was a Haman or Torquemada to the southern Jews. The, the villain from the poem story and the Spanish Inquisitor from 1492. How is it that a rabbi could say he is no more or less moral than a southern racist Jew? And not only a rabbi, but a leading rabbi of the north willing to leave the RA to come to the south in order to, uh, in order to fight uh, civil rights. Uh, he should have said, tzedek tzedek Terdolf, justice, justice, shall you pursue the the fact that he didn't was confounding to me as I was sitting there in the archives, reading his diary, and realized that that answer was actually the answer uh, to the question for today. Booker Tove, welcome, it's great to see all of you. It's great to be in Orange County. Ari, if you can come up for one moment. I have a little, yeah, a little presentation. I have a, a prize and a gift. You see? it's uh, So right, I'll do, I, my students get prizes in my classes. This, there are seven levels of prizes they have to work through the semester. <laughs> You're going to get level seven right off the top. Okay. This is the Professor Dollinger pen. Okay. Yeah, it's got my name on it and my email address if they want to communicate with me. And it's purple, because that's that State's color is purple. So I'm trying to, you know. So, so here's the deal. But here's the trick. The pen, uh, you twist, all right? So. Hold on to the pen for one moment. If you could show it to them. And I just want to let you know that that pen is actually not just a pen. If you pull on the cap really hard, pull it out. Yeah, really hard. Ooh. It's a 16-gigabyte memory stick, too. It's a pen and a memory stick, but wait, it's more. It's, It's Ari's mission for all that he does in the Community Scholars Program. The challenge of Jewish life in the modern world is how we navigate the tradition with modernity right that's what modern jews are trying to do this is i think what you're trying to do we're trying to connect people to jewish tradition while at the same time staying relevant in the modern world so if you look at that pen that pen is the option between dare i say it to most all of us in the room tradition which we'll call ink if you actually want to use a pen, and modernity, which is the computer, which is the opposite end of the pen. So that is a metaphor of our lives as modern Jews, and I would like to say a metaphor for CSP, so uh, thank you and appreciate all the work that you're doing. Thank you all for coming. We're done now. All right, so let's flip the slide if we can. Uh, So what I do is I focus each and every class on a single historical question to keep you all focused. If you were taking notes, I would tell you not to worry. It's in your reader. Um, Historical question, what best explains Jewish participation in the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s? Uh, We get four hours today. Yeah. So uh, I'll give you the answer straight away. The thesis we have, and there's a lot of words, but not to worry. I'm going to walk through them as we talk. In a challenge to accepted notion of Jews and social justice, participation in the civil rights struggles of the post-war era reflected American Jews' involvement in the mainstream more than it revealed heroic selflessness. The very few Jews who risked power and privilege for the benefit of African-Americans emerged as heroes, though most of their brethren remained on the sidelines. So this is um, a little bit of truth-telling for the next slide. Oh, okay. So those of you who are with me for the last two talks are forbidden from answering or giving the answer to anybody else now. Um, Definition of the word history, anybody? This is the easy question. The hard one's coming next. Yes? Anything that happened before now. Thank you. Study of the past. We'll put that up there. Uh, Great. And now, the difficult one. Historiography. Why use a monosyllabic when a polysyllabic will do? Any former history majors here? Great, I'll speak freely. Any English majors who like etymology and can look at that word and see historiography? Yes? The writing of history. Very good, from the graphing. Excellent. How did you know the answer to that? I was a history major. All right. I typically forbid history majors from speaking because they tend to intimidate the audience. I just want them all to know that you learned that as an undergrad, well done. Um, In fact, uh, It it, it is a good answer. It it is a level one prize worthy answer. I'm happy to present to you, and I'm going to walk away from the mic for just one minute, a genuine Jewish studies themed pencil. And now it's the Donahue show for a brief moment. Thank you for laughing. My students weren't alive then. You're laughing now. They just look at me with a weird sense of discomfort. (laughs) <laughs> all right. Much better. Thank you. And let this be an inspiration to you all. <laughs> Historiography, the graphing of history, the history of writing history. Oh, yes, rabbi, the late rabbi Dr. Michael Signer from the Hebrew Union College here in L.A. and then Notre Dame. He gave me that line, which I appreciate, so I want to honor him. And the next, line, the next slide, the study of how historians have studied the past, uh, which is to say that about every 20 years, history changes. It doesn't actually change, but the way in which it's told and written changes because historians bring their own generational perspective to whatever the subject is. So if you study one thing. And, and in grad school, you have to read like every book that's ever been written on that one thing. You'll notice, as you're reading the books over time, that the telling of the history of that evolves or changes. And the next slide. This is Professor the late Joyce Appleby, sadly, who's a professor at UCLA and former department chair and head of our professional association for a time. She said, history is more the relationship of the present to the past than the past itself. For example, if, uh, you'd, uh, if you're at the University of Mississippi in 1840 reading a textbook on slavery, it's going to say some really good things about slavery because you're in Mississippi and you're white and it's 1840. If you're a student at the University of Massachusetts Boston in 1860 and you get the textbook from that school, it's going to tell you slavery was really bad, because that was the heart of the abolitionist movement. And if you take a student who knows nothing about nothing and put both textbooks next to them, they won't even know they're reading about the same historical moment. Does that makes sense? Um, so in ethnic history, which is Jewish studies uh, as well, um, there is a history of generational approaches to the same topic. So today is not a history lesson. It's an his, uh, historiographic lesson lesson. So if you saw in the thesis that it seemed rather harsh, it is harsh compared to the earlier understandings of Jewish involvement in civil rights. So the job of the scholar and the privilege of tenure is I get to speak truth to you. Without fear that my board will come out after me, and the rabbis I, I work with love this because they say, "I can't say it, because I have a board Will you come and say it." So mm-hmm. they bring me in and I give them a prize, and we're all good, you know, <laughs> um, for it. So the, there is a history of historiography, if you really want to get into the theory of it. The first are right, actually my favorite polysabalic. Philio pietistic. <laughs> Anyone? I'll give you a hint. It's from the Greek. Yes. Love of something. Honored father? Oh, very well done. Love of one's own brother, literally. All right. So, actually, if you can just keep handing that back. Very few people get this. Filio pietistic. Love of one's own family. But it really means ethnic self congratulations. Which means. Aren't the Jews great? The first generation of writing in Jewish studies and black studies and women's studies and gay and lesbian studies, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, tends to um, be very prideful and want to show how important your particular group was to the world. I get them in the emails every three weeks, Jewish Nobel Prize winners. You know? And so, so that is filiopietism or it's Um, I have to do one quick break, because I keep looking at Diana. I went to like elementary school with Diana. She's here. Thank you so much for coming. It's good to see you again. Um, all right, now a challenge for all of you. Ari will be the judge. You have one week to use the following phrase in conversation, <laughs> Pietistic historiographic analysis.
0: <laughs>
1: you can say you went to a CSP lecture and you heard about filiopietistic historiographic analysis. That's cheating. You have to have an ongoing conversation for which the phrase filiopietistic historiographic analysis naturally occurs. <laughs> Let Ari know, I will get you a pencil for using that particular phrase. All right, so we'll go on to the next. And there it is. Ethnic self-congratulations. We can move on. All right. Civil rights movement. The historiography of the civil rights movement, which is, how have scholars looking at Jewish involvement in civil rights come to understand the story of how it is? There are typically three rationales given for why Jews would be involved in civil rights, and I'm just going to bet this is probably where most of us in the room today, when we either experienced it in our own lives or we learned about it, internalized. Number one is the history argument. Of course, Jews helped blacks. Jews have suffered a history of discrimination. Blacks have have suffered a history of discrimination. Therefore, blacks and Jews share a common historical bond, and that will naturally drive the two communities together. Right? Argument number two, sociology. That is, Jews know what it is to experience marginalization, to be an outsider in a society, as do African-Americans. So when two groups that understand outsider status see that the other one is suffering, there will be a, a common connection. And the third answer, which when I give this quiz, Sadly, no one ever gets why Jews would support civil rights is what Rabbi, Rav Ari has already said. Religion, Judaism, that our text demands justice and righteousness. And even if blacks weren't blacks and didn't have the common history in sociology, Jews need to be involved in justice work. Are we all feeling good about that? <laughs> Yeah, I know, because this is the moment of transition in the lecture, <laughs> when the good gets to bad. But don't feel too bad, because it's going to get ugly in a moment. But not to worry. I'm going to end on a positive note, because I have to like draw the whole circle. All right, the next slide. We'll put that up. Yeah, so... When I went to Vista Grande School in Palos Verdes, California, I was not a very good art student. I didn't progress past stick figures, so I'm sticking with stick figures for my artistic representations. Here's the problem with those three rationales. The fancy historian's word is causality. Scholars of history look for causality. What caused history to happen the way it did? Historiography is when you challenge causality just to be fancy about it, which is to say, all the other historians said this caused history to happen. And now you went to grad school and said, no, you're an idiot. I'm smart. This is actually what caused it to happen. You write your dissertation. You make it a book. You get a job and tenure. And you're so proud of yourself for about 10 more years. And the next generation comes through grad school and reads your book and says, Dollinger, you're such an idiot. You got causality wrong. And they write a new book with a new version. Here's the problem with the, dare I say it, filiopietistic historiographic rendition of Jews in the Civil Rights Movement. Blacks and Jews did not share a common history. The American Jewish experience was a fabulous experience with incredible social mobility very fast. The African American experience was not. Centuries of slavery followed by institutional racism. As Milton Brown, my African American Uh, A colleague who is an African-American scholar of race and ethnicity said, if I have another well-meaning Jewish family, tell me they know my experience because they too were slaves in the land of Egypt. (laughs) (laughs) I'll flip out. So let's just get rid of the notion of a common history as a causal agent. Sociology, Jews as marginal and blacks as marginal. Jews were marginal in this country. For a long time, the 20s and the 30s were pretty miserable times for anti-Semitism. But the Jews didn't start the civil rights activism till the mid-50s, the exact time when anti-Semitic barriers had dropped. And Jews were now admitted wherever pretty much they they wanted to to be and could aspire to be. So the sociology argument actually doesn't work. And Judaism, religion? The denomination that was most involved in the civil rights movement was reform, which was the least tradition-based. The denomination that's most tradition-based orthodox was least involved in the civil rights movement. And if you talk about those young people that went south to protest and get injured and in a couple of cases, unfortunately, died for the cause, and I know this is a podcast, but I do have tenure, so I will say, they were socialists or even communists. That reject organized religion on principle. So if the three top reasons to justify Jewish involvement are all wrong, we need a new non-philiopietistic historiographic look at that. And that's where the letter Y, no, keep up with the Y. Oh, oh, I did not want to like to to preview, but but that's good because I'm leading to a, a, a three-letter you know, yeah. talk here. Uh, I'm going to stay at the mic because it's a podcast, but I will just visually explain that if you look at the top left of the why, let's put the blacks there, let's put the Jews on the left side. They're apart, and over time, they come together in the civil rights movement, and they march together into history. That's the Why? I will argue that if you read any book on blacks and Jews and civil rights from the first historiographic generation, no matter what they were writing about, it's a why. It's blacks and Jews who used to be apart, who come together and and march together in a wonderful alliance. And it's a beautiful historiographic school as long as you stop in 1964. Because it turns out blacks and Jews split in the mid-60s with the rise of black nationalism, black power, and black anti-Semitism. So really, now we'll go to the next one. Maybe it's not a Y at all. Maybe it's an X with blacks and Jews separate. They come together in the middle for about 10 years. Let's just say 1954 to 1964, you could argue it. And then after 64, they each go in their own direction. And today, blacks and Jews are apart once again. The X is not reflected in the first generation's interpretation. So when I was in grad school and I read the Y, I said, wow, that only works until 1965, now it's time, or 64, now it's time to write a new book. So I I wrote a book, which was the uh, X version. And and then I, hold on one moment, and then I thought to myself, for the current book, which is what we're going to talk about today, I said, all right, let me think about this. All right, so there was an X, and that's not right. There was a Y, and that's not right. What could be right? A Z, (laughs) yes, creative I am. (laughs) I just figured this out a week and a half ago in front of some undergrads at S.S. State. I'm very proud of myself. You're the third group to hear the Z, right? And here's how it works. We start up at the top in the the mid-50s. Blacks and Jews marching together forward. Isn't that nice? Until the mid-60s. Then, oh, they go backwards with the breakup. But then, in the late 60s and 70s, they, in a weird way, marched together yet again from a different spot. I am a visual learner and not an artist. So that, in fact, is, are you ready for this? Three historiographic generations on the approach of Jews and social justice to the civil rights movement Impress your friends. All right, let's go next. Um, now, the story of Southern Jews. And for this, um, most of this research comes from uh, Rabbi Krauss's rabbinic thesis. Uh, and, uh, and he is the one who, all right. So he went in the mid-60s to the Deep South and talked to Southern rabbis under condition that their names and congregations would remain anonymous until the threat against them and Southern Jews was over. And Rabbi Krauss would determine when that would be which means two things. One, the quotes I'm going to give you come from the time period, which is historically more powerful. And second, it was done with promise of anonymity so they could be more honest about what they're saying. That's what makes his his research so good. I was in the archives in Cincinnati. I came across all the great quotes. It said, Rabbi X from Congregation Y. And that means I can't use it because you have to know who said it and where. And I was like, oh, no. So I went to the archivist. I said, I need the key. They said, you can't have the key. It's closed. I said, who opens the key? And I said, Rabbi Krauss is the only one who can open the key. And I said, Rabbi Kraus's son was my camper at Camp (laughs) Swig. I'm playing the counselor card. And Rabbi Krauss is in Jerusalem on sabbatical. And I sent him what was called a fax, if you remember that. And I said, please, 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 can I have the key? And he said, yes, you can have the key. So I thank and honor Rabbi Krauss because he released the key, so this was the first place where this material came. Southern Jews did not support the civil rights movement. And what is the causality of that? What caused Southern Jews to take an opposite view of Northern Jews? Demographics, for one. In Montgomery, and I went there once, it was Montgomery. The population is 134,000 in the mid-60s, only 1,800 Jews out of 134,000. Birmingham, 630,000 in the population, only 4,000 Jews. And these were the larger towns. If you go to the smaller towns, it's like three Jewish families um, on one main street. So if you are such a small minority, um, you need to think very carefully about what political positions you're going to take. Number two, economics. There were boycotts, yes, boycotts against one side and boycotts against the other side, because each side was boycotting the other one in order to bring social change. And if you were a small town Southern Jew, chances are you were involved in retail, because that was a predominant place for Southern Jews. So if they took one side in the movement, the other side would boycott and vice versa. As Rabbi Milton Grafman in Birmingham said, his congregants were, quote, caught in a vice. Between the Negroes, using the word of the time, and the whites, they couldn't win for losing. Anti-Semitism. The lynching of Leo Frank in 1913 was in the lived memory of many Southern Jews. So the notion that anti-Semitism was not in force in the South and against Jews was simply not true. As you may remember or be aware, in October of 1958, the temple in Atlanta was bombed because Rabbi Jacob Rothschild Um, was, as he said, so obviously identified with the civil rights movement. In Houston, the Houston's largest conservative movement synagogue, its rabbi William Malev, the rabbis have not spoken out, and to have done so would have been to invite resentment and anti-Semitism, if not indeed violence towards the Jewish community. Reform rabbi Moses Landau in Cleveland, Mississippi, said if he decided to support the civil rights movement, quote, It would have been limited to 24 hours, unquote, because after one day he said, I wouldn't be in the state anymore. One rabbi, um, uh, Perry Nussbaum, in Mississippi, was going to visit the jail in Parchman to help all the northern Jewish students who came down and got arrested. And after a while, it's taken a toll on his schedule, so he just put out a letter to all the Mississippi rabbis, let's meet in my living room and just you know, share the burden, like we'll each take a different day of the week or whatever they're going to do. And all the other rabbis said, we're not going to do that and we're not even going to show up for a meeting. Because if we show up for a meeting and we go and do that, we're going to get fired by our congregation. Uh, And this was even some rabbis who were northern raised. Uh, Ultimately, Perry Nussbaum continued to help those uh, northern kids uh, on his own, but only because his board said, that they would agree, quote, uneasily, unquote, to the visits as long as he made a public proclamation that he was acting as an individual rabbi and not the name, in the name of his congregation. And some congregants quit the temple, as you might imagine, and others just called the local sheriff to make sure that they knew. Why does Rabbi Winograd say that he is no more moral than the southern Jews, because, as he later wrote in his diary, he could not pass judgment on a group whose lives he had not led. His pain was not that some southern Jews were racist. His pain was Klaal Yisrael, The the, the unity of the Jewish people had been broken by a political issue, because he knew that if he were born and raised a southern Jew, he would probably be standing there holding the sign himself. And the notion that one person is inherently more moral than another is probably less to do with one's Jewishness and more to do with where one lives and what one's real-life situation is around. Uh, So with this, I understood that the Southern Jews were not actually to be marginalized in the historiography, because that's how most people in the early generations treated Southern Jews, in a footnote, There weren't too many, and a lot were racist, so we're not going to talk about them in the literature. That's basically the way you dealt with Southern Jews. (laughs) And I put them first. And I said, they're the model by which we understand Jewish political behavior, which is a mediation between being American, whatever that means. In this case, it means being a white Southerner, and being Jewish, between the tradition and the modernity uh, as it's working out. And then we move north because... Uh, Yeah, so we'll go to the next one, I think, is our other slide. Yeah. Civil rights movement begins in the mid-'50s. Brown decision is 54. Montgomery bus boycott, 55. So most of the scholars who write about it start in 1954 or 1955. So I said, okay, just for fun, let's start in 1945. Let's take 10 years of Jewish involvement in civil rights in the North when nobody was looking. And let's see how northern Jews behaved before it was socially acceptable. And I found that in 1947, Rabbi Stephen S. Wise, the celebrated New York rabbi, went to Washington DC to testify to to a Senate Subcommittee on Education on a bill to provide federal funding for public schools. And what could be more Jewish than public funding for public schools? And he goes and he gives great American Jewish testimony that Jews believe in education, they believe in public education, they believe the more support the government gives to help our kids, the better. What a great speech. And he finishes the speech, and he goes and sits down in the, in the, uh, in the, in the seating area. And a couple white Southern senators walk up to him. Rabbi, they said, and I'm paraphrasing now, we don't like your bill. Because the moment federal dollars come to the South, the federal government's going to start telling us what we can do and not do in our schools with regards to Jim Crow and segregation. So we are not going to let this bill out of committee unless you agree to an amendment. And the amendment says, send all the money you want to the South, but you can't touch segregation. If you're Rabbi Stephen S. Wise, what do you say? He said yes. He said, quote, so long as the law guarantees that states having segregated school systems do not discriminate financially against children in minority schools, we believe the bill should be supported. I know we have some lawyers in the House. That was the argument of the 1896 Plessy versus Ferguson case that said separate is equal, and that was the case overturned by the 1954 Brown decision. Rabbi Stephen S. Wise was defending Plessy and was not only not supporting Brown, he was on the opposite side. Dr. King was too young to have been there, but let's just imagine Dr. King was there. And they said to him, here's a deal for you. He's turning down the deal because he's not interested in having money coming that's not going to help African-Americans in the South. So here's a moment where Jewish privilege and Jewish whiteness and Jewish northernness comes to bear on politics by our probably our nation's leading rabbi of the age, who argues what's called liberal gradualism. That is, look, you can't do everything at once. Let's do it small piece by piece by piece. But if we're going to look at the filiopietistic historiographic analysis of American Jews and civil rights, Rabbi Stephen S. Wise doesn't fit the argument. Because even 10 years before anyone was paying attention, he was clearly on what we would now call the wrong side. And as an historian, I can't say it's the wrong side. I have to describe it rather than judge it. But I would say that he is reflecting an historical reality which we typically don't hear because we tend to write history that's more self-congratulatory rather than uh, more critical and ultimately truthful. Okay, we'll go to the next slide. Black power. This is the famed 1968 Mexico City Games where. Uh, two American athletes uh, raised their fists in support of of black power. The X and Y analyses of Jews and civil rights look at this moment as the end. It's the end because according to the self-serving historiography, blacks became anti-Semitic, blacks purged whites from civil rights organizations and that's code for Jews because Jews were disproportionate in the number of whites who were involved in civil rights. And everything was peace, love, Bobby Sherman and kumbaya until people like Stokely Carmichael and Malcolm X and later Louis Farrakhan emerge and end it all and destroy all the good work. That would be the X theory, right? They came together and they went apart and the causality of the break was black anti Semitism. Well, yeah. When did, um, what's his name, um, he ran for president in. Jesse Jackson? 84. When, when, when did he run? 84. Okay, so this pre- pre- precedes pre- that, that, right, in the mid 60s. So I was expecting, going into the archives, that I was going to find that narrative. It was stunning that when I actually read the documents, private documents and public documents from the mid-1960s, I was reading something entirely different. Rabbi Dove Peretz Elkins, for example, um, who was a Har Zion synagogue in Philadelphia at the time, he said from the Bema, quote, black power is nothing more and nothing less than Negro Zionism. So even as black power was destroying the black Jewish alliance, rabbinic leaders understood and empathized that what the African-American community was going through was exactly what Jewish community went through with the creation of the state of Israel. Rabbi Elkin saw a connection at a time of great discord. Oh, okay, so that's the new book. We'll go to the next one, I think. Yes, okay, this is Rabbi uh, Arthur Hertzberg, who also taught at Columbia, Uh, who was a famed author uh, and and rabbi. And uh, and he he said, Stokely Carmichael, who was the leader of black power, is the most radical kind of Negro Zionist. He talks exactly the language of those Jews who felt most violently angry at the sight of Hitler and most hurt by the good people who stood aside. So this rabbi saw in Stokely a Jewish hero. And this is my favorite quote of like the whole book. Perhaps the saddest element in this whole frightening picture is in the fact that Jews are the people best able to understand the rhetoric of black power, even though they're most directly on the firing line of its attack. Our next slide. This is Rabbi Roland uh, Gittelson, Temple Israel of Boston. 1947, Truman puts him on the Civil Rights Commission. In the mid-50s, his, his congregants are the ones in Parchment Prison that Rabbi Nussbaum has to visit. And how is he going to react to the rise of black power? The black power advocate is a Negro Zionist. Africa is his Israel. The positive aspect of black power is its search for ethnic identity. This we Jews of all people should be able to understand and approve. The American Negro today is in this respect retracing precisely the experience of American Jews a generation or two ago. I'm going to hold off on the slides now just to give you the next thing that happened. American Jews following the the pioneering work of black nationalists got the idea that American Jews could follow in the footsteps of black power. For example. The Soviet Jewry movement should have occurred in the mid-'50s because it was an anti-communist movement. It didn't go national till the mid-'60s. One quarter of the the, uh, Soviet Jewry activists trained in the civil rights movement. And if you're uh, involved in civil rights and then black power says, we don't want you, and then you say, well, what do I do? And they say, go to your own community and fight for your own community and they find their own version, or in this case, our own version of civil rights, which is Soviet Jewry movement. I argue the Soviet Jewry movement would not have occurred without the Black Power movement, because it should have happened in the 50s, and American Jews were not interested in being all publicly Jewish in the 1950s. But by the mid-1960s, in a new political dynamic, they were. Balchuva, master or owner of the return secularized kids who become more religious and traditional than their parents, who come back from college or a trip to Israel and refuse to eat in their parents' home because it's not kosher or not kosher enough. This happened in the late 60s and the 1970s. Non-Orthodox Jewish day schools come and emerge in the late 60s and 1970s. I argue because Jews are given cultural permission to be more Jewish. Because black power has given every ethnic, (laughs) racial, gender group permission to be. Latino, they take over Alcatraz Island. Uh, I'm sorry, AIM, American Indian Movement, takes over Alcatraz. Latinos form Mecha. Uh, There are Asian American groups that protest uh, U.S. policy in Vietnam. Of course, there's black power in the early 1970s. The National Organization for Women forms and feminism starts. And I'm doing the Jewish piece of all those different ethnic, racial, gender groups that get into it. The 1967 war could not have happened at a better moment for American Jews. While many of my rabbi friends brag about how great the Six-Day War was for making American Jews into Zionists, I say, no, it was black power in 64 that purged these Jews out of the interracial alliance, got them into the idea of nationalism. That war could not have occurred at a better time in a better place for American Jews who became more Zionists because blacks became more nationalists. So when people will argue that American Jews became more Jewish in the late 60s and 1970s, I argue, no, they became more American, because only in an America of the 1960s could they have been more Jewish. And since the America of the 1960s that let them be more Jewish was created by black nationalism and black power, Jews thought they were being Jewish when really they were being American, but just they were really becoming black. Thank you very much. (laughs) The argument of the 50s was a consensus, black and Jews get along, and that's why they marched until the mid 60s split them up. So the Z argument says, yeah, they marched together, an interracial alliance. Then they split up, but then they joined in a new alliance with blacks for black power, Jews for Jewish power, women for feminist power, Latinos for mecha power. You know, just like that. Uh, and and there was a, in fact a consensus, a similarity that we haven't seen before. Questions? Yes.
0: You, uh, you missed out on the Jewish Defense League, which also formed during that period. Of-
1: Yes. Thank you. That's because I had just four hours today. Um, Jewish Defense League is an excellent example. It is in the book. And what's fascinating about the JDL is they are a political rightist group. So what I'm arguing is that American Jews went to the left radically, but they also went to the right radically. But both the left and the right movement were formed on the notion of black nationalism. Uh, and in this case, the constitution of what was Jewish across the political spectrum all goes back to the same place. Yeah. In your XYZ analysis, it seems that Jews are becoming that cycle starting over again with the Democratic Party increasingly, or say the liberal, aligning itself with people who are anti Semitic, you know, type of BDS movement. And where do Jews fit in? Do they become, where is Americans, do they become? with the blacks, Latinos, Asians, everyone else, or are they with more traditional white groups? Yeah, so I say I'm an historian. It's tough enough to predict the past. <laughs> uh, that's the snarky answer to the good question, which I usually get as, are Jews becoming Republican? That's differently where the, where the question comes. Uh, and I will say that um, what this is, is is it's a question of Jews and whiteness, power, and privilege. And the extent to which Jews self-identify as people of color well, the extent to which Jews see themselves as white, and the extent to which other community organizations of color <coughs> perceive Jews. And then to complicate it even more, 10% of American Jews are Jews of color. 20% of American Jews identify as ethnically diverse, meaning they're Sephardic Jews or Mizrahi Jews, living in an Ashkenazi normative approach to Jewish life. Um, and therefore, the next, next question in the historiography Um, I talk about blacks and Jews as opposites across a racial divide. What if there's no racial divide? What, What if blacks and other diverse peoples are also Jews? And we as white Ashkenazi normative Jews cannot deal with them as racial minorities because they are us. And the most challenging part of that is it really causes reflection on white privilege, which is a topic that most... Ashkenazi normative Jews do not like to talk about. Uh, yeah. Are Jews
0: overrepresented in pretty much every social justice movement?
1: Are Jews overrepresented in every social justice movement? I'm remembering to repeat the question. Yes. Uh, certainly in the 1960s, a disproportionate number of whites in terms of activists were Jewish in terms of philanthropic support were Jewish. So that when whites were purged in the mid-60s, it was seen by Jewish leaders as code for purging, purging Jews. So on one sense, we could jump to, well, that's religion and sociology and history. Uh, but then each of those get undermined. So we're trying to figure out you know, what, what else is actually going on. Yeah.
0: I was thinking in New York City, when uh, the fire started in Harlem, some of that was a recognition that Jewish owners, Jewish retailers, Jewish shop uh, owners, landlords. landlords, were the ones who were creating the discrimination were, in a sense, victimizing blacks. Yes. Yeah. And that, to some extent, would explain the separation.
1: Uh, so the question is about um, uh, Jewish uh, landlords or slumlords in predominantly African-American neighborhoods, in this case, Harlem. Uh, and certainly, so what happened with the, the end of anti-Semitic restrictions and housing in white suburbs is that Jews were able to leave their older neighborhoods and urban areas and move to new neighborhoods and suburban areas, but for the most part, they did not leave their economic or business interests, even as they moved their families. So you're in a situation where you have a predominantly non-Jewish clientele owned and run by Jews. And this was a cause of great friction um, when there were charges of racism by these particular landlords. And there was a lot of Jewish leftist groups in the late 60s who were actually, you know, one of them famously went into a, outside a synagogue in Washington, D.C. on Yom Kippur to protest the Jewish landlords who were coming in there to Davin and to demand that they seek, you know, forgiveness uh, for, for what they're doing. The most recent historiography on that is now comparing Jewish small shop owners in the 60s with Korean shop owners in the 70s and 80s, and even now Palestinian shop owners in the 21st century, to see the extent to which this is an economic issue, a racial issue, an ethnic issue. You you can play all those different variables to to see how it is that that those relations go. Yeah. You mentioned when you're talking about black power, Well, Stokely and Louis Farrakhan, Elijah Muhammad. I don't think I mentioned Malcolm X. Malcolm X. Malcolm X. Yeah,
0: was black power.
1: Yeah, black. Who's yeah, Nation of Islam? Those are the only ones that I remember. I've just thrown out names. Bobby Sherman. Oh, he's Bobby Sherman. I'll listen to the podcast. Yeah. Okay. Great. And then send me an email. Uh, yes. So, um,
0: in what way? I mean, I know that the history departments. Also fragmented into these various um, yeah. points uh, that you were talking about the Jewish community and the black community. And so how do these things uh, affect one another? You say the history departments and, and in what way? Across the uh, universities and then the specialized studies. Oh, thank you. Okay. okay. I, I did not want to answer the question
1: you didn't ask, and I was hoping that's what you were asking because that's what I want to answer, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I spent the first half of my career in a history department in American Jewish history. I spent the last half of my career in a department of Jewish studies. This is the politics of power in the university. The theory is in ethnic studies, especially among communities of color. So in this case, I actually don't include, include Jews there. But, uh, so let's just take African-American historians. If you had a university and you put an African-American historian in the history department and a sociologist in the social department, blah, 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 I can guarantee you there's not going to be much uh, productivity in African-American studies, because whoever that person is they are going to get outvoted for everything, from money to course selection to units to GE requirements. So thanks to the Black Power movement, um, ethnic studies emerged in the university to say, let's gather everyone together from Black Studies, Jewish Studies, Women's Studies, Gay Lesbian Studies, American Indian Studies, and let's make a department with only that ethnic group. And now they're going to win every departmental vote. I'm at SF State. There's five of us in Jewish studies full time. Every time we meet, we talk about Jewish studies. And this never happened when I was in a history department. So it is at its most basic a power play in order to find money and resources to look at an interdisciplinary approach from the perspective of an ethnic, racial, or gender group.
0: Uh, One of the things that was mentioned I think uh, during the introduction was your uh, work with the BDS movement and of course the BDS movement is, got unfortunately seems a fair number of Jews in it. Uh, Negative and in other words they are supporting some of the college, Jewish college professors as well as some of the Jewish students uh, uh, voting for BDS and I'm wondering where where that stuff comes from. That
1: would be an entirely different lecture, which I'm happy to give. Um, But I would say as a short answer, yes, there are many Jewish students and faculty members who support BDS completely, or support support different modified forms of BDS. And the challenge to bring it into our topic for today, if the charge by American Jewish liberals against the Palestinian uh, nationalist cause, we've been talking about black nationalism, now we'll talk about Palestinian, is its use of terror, and that the Palestinians should take a page from Dr. King and go for nonviolent resistance. BDS becomes nonviolent resistance, as opposed to terrorism, for national self-determination for a a marginalized community. So the BDS argument is actually very convincing, alongside the why version of the historiography that we had, even as probably people here hearing all that will probably are going to be you know uh, reluctant to to see that for a generation of young people and for many intellectual uh, Jews in the university, um, BDS is a step forward.
0: All right. Yeah. Two questions for you. One is uh, my do- this is somewhat related to what you're talking about. My daughter came home from high school and said, "I can't watch Gone with the Wind with her," because. From a historiographic perspective, she didn't use the word. Mm-hmm. It's actually an inappropriate movie because it glorifies slavery and it was made at a time when people didn't understand what they were doing. But now we look at the movie, you can't you shouldn't go see it anymore. So it kind of fits into your question about writing history at the time. So my question is, should we can we go see a movie like that? Which would apply to other movies, you know, which tell a story of history at a time that is very different than now. So not now perspective.
1: Can you see historical movies which are now understood in the current historiographic generation to be prejudiced in some way? So um, there's a lot of of reluctance because most people who view these movies won't see it, won't know it, and could internalize it, and it could, in fact, reflect back on their own um, biases. I'll speak as a scholar and say that Amazon.com got in big trouble because they were selling the protocols of Zion on their website and a whole lot of Jewish advocacy groups. It's a forgery of anti-Semitic proportion that Hitler used to justify the genocide as self-defense. All right, So it's a nasty, terrible anti-Semitic book. And they're like, you can't offer for sale this. People shouldn't buy it. And when they said, OK, the Jewish studies professors across the country screamed and yelled and said, we need the book. Our students buy it. We're teaching it in our course on anti-Semitism. <laughs> So I, of course, want to see all of these. And I want people to see them, because I'm an academic historian of the Jewish experience. And if it's related, then I'm going to use it as a primary source. So just for fun, don't do it now, because your devices are off. If you look at the protocols <laughs> in Zion under Amazon, they had to put up a little screen thing that said, this is a forgery. It is anti-Semitic. If you buy it, don't believe it. Click here. <laughs> all right,
0: one more right. question. So last question. Yeah. just. Uh, Uh, Not intentionally, but right now the ADL is having their civil rights brunch. So I did not do this program on civil rights to compete with the ADL, it just worked out this way. So in that relation, I think I asked you, I don't know if you can answer the question, is going into Hanukkah and the year and season I mentioned, besides CSP, if people wanted to support (laughs) civil rights in this country, we we seem to be in a very interesting time. Um, Which organizations are doing interesting work right now? Um, that people should think about research on their own. Uh, and I don't know if you can answer yeah. the question. So I will say
1: I'm a scholar of religion and politics. The two things you never talk about are in polite conversation. So I joke that I don't get invited to parties. That's not true. I do get invited to parties. I just don't get invited back. So I have, a, as a professional courtesy, because I'm always talking about politics in groups that have a range of political opinion, I never stake claim or advocate. I always want everyone to understand where they come from, where others come from, and, and how it works out, um, but I did get the question ahead of time, so I'm going to step out of that role and, and speak you know, from a personal perspective, which will be personal professional, and that is that um, you know, as a Jewish studies professor, I do not engage with community advocacy organizations, because it's not my job to promote a political agenda of any sort. And for that reason, at SF State, which is a very leftist and anti-Israel and anti-Zionist and occasionally anti-Semitic campus, I'm getting every group of the Jewish world that wants to save us from ourselves calling and telling me how I can help them save me. Right? And, and it is our policy to say goodbye, thank you very much, with one exception. And the one exception is when we are convinced that we've crossed the line into anti-Semitism. And this is the scholarly definition, which is a very conservative definition, which basically means everyone in the room has to agree it's anti-Semitic, because if we're going to fight about whether that is or isn't, it's not strong enough. And uh, fortunately, two years ago, we got to that point at SF State. And my department chair and I picked up the phone. And um, we we have a, a group that was dubbed 20 years ago by our administration, The Family which is to say that when anti-Semitism hits our campus, we actually have a community-based organizational group that comes to SF State to deal with it. It's the ADL, the JCRC, Hillel, and Federation. And the top leader of each of those four meets with myself, the department chair, and whoever is the highest ranking Jewish administrator at that point in time. And we sit with the university president, and we talk. So for two years, I have been in a very close relationship with JCRC, ADL, and Federation. That's me and Hillel because I'm the faculty Hillel advisor. And, and these are the ones that, that are on the front line. Thank, Thank you all. You.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you all for coming out. Uh, I certainly learned a lot about our role in civil rights. And uh, this was podcast. If you want to let's do it again and share it with your friends. Have a great Hanukkah. Hopefully I'll see you this week at some of our events.